0: Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and R.J. Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. We are back. We are back on the Mockingcast, ready to talk about all sorts of things, including college admission scandals and the poor and things you cannot say, among many other subjects, which I'm sure we will come up. But before, as we like to always do, how on earth are you doing?
1: Good. I'm good. I have a new job. So... Woo!
0: Yeah, yeah. tell yeah. us what it is sarah it's pretty cool
1: so i am the new chaplain episcopal chaplain for um the university of rice rice university i need rice to figure university. that out okay yeah. thank you go owls yeah. i'm supposed yeah. to say oh, that now the mascot good job but yeah go sports because the bishop emailed go owls to me and i was like oh that's what it is okay got it good okay Owls. yeah <laughs> sports yep sports yes <laughs>
0: We're doing it. <laughs> well, congratulations, <laughs> Thank though, you. Sarah. I mean, it's very cool. I mean, I'm hopefully, I have a feeling that uh, there won't be any uh, college admission scandals going on at the at, at Rice University. Yeah, uh, we'll see. God willing. Yeah, Although well, if there
1: are, I can pray him through it. That'll be my job. So
0: there you go, Reverend Condon, on the job. Yeah, right. yep. RJ, what do you have to say for yourself?
2: I'm great, man. Like it's a. Perfectly beautiful day in Houston, Texas. It's like 74, not a cloud in the sky. It's dry. I do not suffer from allergies, so I am happy. Cruising around, top down, listening to little Chet Baker. The NCAA tournament started today.
0: Oh, boy. So, you know. Go who's? Yeah. Go, go
2: Go who's. <laughs> yep. are you Last like year.
1: pickled? Like, seriously, you don't have allergies? Like, can you just, what are your physical ailments? Like, I'm confused. Um, I've had my appendix out.
0: Someone on iTunes wrote a very encouraging review, which by the way, if you haven't written a review on iTunes, please, that would, that helps us out tremendously. But someone wrote, um, they were complimenting, uh, the cast and they were talking about how Sarah's full of passion and verve. And then they say, and RJ's live in the solution. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i was
2: like i uh, guess yes rj is living the solution yeah why don't you come spend a week in my house and then we'll talk okay because i uh, love it yeah that is not i mean i did i'll say the night before last i spent i, I slept from one thirty to three thirty on the floor because my two-year-old refused to get back in his bed but he would sleep on the floor which is probably why my back hurts Oh no. so um you know yeah. Mm. So if the solution
1: is like suffering in cafeteria banana pudding, he is yeah. living
2: the solution. I can attest to that. <laughs> it, ain't all, it ain't all convertibles and basketball. I'm that right now. <laughs> Just today. Just
0: today. <laughs> well, things things here in Virginia are very much heating up. For that reason, for the NCAA tournament, people are thinking about nothing else. Of course, they're also heating up because Seculosity is only two weeks away. By the time we record again, it will be out there in people's hands, and I'm I'm nervous. I'm excited. I'm it's very exciting. You know, it's awesome. Very right? uh, you know, I'm sort of impatient. And yeah, in fact, I feel like, you know, every week there's a new gimme in terms of the theme of the book. And this week... Uh, It is this college admissions scandal, which is now kind of old news, but um, it's prompted some wonderful writing. And the first thing we're going to talk about today is what Peggy Noonan had to write in the Wall Street Journal. She wrote a wonderful column called Kids Don't Become Success Robots. And uh, this is what she sort of uh, observed about the uh, college admissions scandal in which a bunch of parents were caught, including a couple Hollywood... um, Actors, including Aunt Becky from Full House, as we all know. This is what Peggy Noonan writes. She says, In the past decade or so, I've observed a, particularly, a particular parenting style growing prevalent among the upper middle class and wealthy. It is intense. They love their kids and want the best for them. They want uh, to be responsible. But there's a greed to which one wonders if they don't also see them, their children, as narcissistic extensions of themselves. These parents are hyper attentive, providing meticulous academic grooming, private schools, private tutors, coaches, lessons in chess and uh, Chinese language, and cello. It says they aim their children at the best colleges, which are to them basically brands. The colleges too market themselves that way. Well, we are Harvard. Get in there, and you're branded too. Noonan writes, I believe a lot of parents do this, not only so their children will do well, but so that they will look good. And then in The, the Atlantic, they interviewed some college sort of academic uh, consultants who said the parents do, in addition to wanting to provide for their children, they want to brag to other parents at the grocery store when they're standing in line, they do want that bumper sticker on the back of their car. Back to Noonan, though, she says they are status monkeys creating success robots, which in one way is odd because their family has already arrived. But there is something sick about America that no matter how much success you have, it's not enough. You must have more, and everyone must know you have it. The kids pick up uh, through cues the family ethos, which is that the purpose of an education is to look good. She sort of finish off, off, she talks about her experience at Tennessee Tech, but she says, she says, "Uh, I'll tell you where I saw success robots. A few years ago, I worked for a few months at an Ivy League school. I expected a lot of questions about politics, history and literature, but that is not what the students were really interested in. What they were interested in, it was almost my first question and it never abated, was networking. They wanted to know how you network. At first I was surprised. I'd say, I don't know, that wasn't on my mind. I think it all comes down to work. Then I'd ask, why don't you just make friends instead? By the end, I was saying, it's a mistake to see people as commodities, Mm -hmm. as things you can use, concentrate on the work. They'd get impatient. They knew there was a secret to getting ahead, that it was networking, and that I was cruelly withholding successful strategies. In time, I concluded they'd been trained to be shallow, encouraged to see others as commodities. They didn't think great work would be rewarded. They thought great connections were. And it was what they implicitly had been promised by the school. Get in here and you can network with the cream of the crop and you'll rise to the top with them. Noonan's closing advice is do not network. Make friends, learn about the lives of others. It's a refreshing column that I think, you know, really uh, takes the mask off a lot of the sort of righteousness, in fact, uh, for parents, not just for children. Of course, these parents want, uh, they worry about their kid's future and they want what's best for them. But we would be lying uh, to ourselves and to other people if we did not acknowledge that um, the over-identification with one's children and the sort of extent to which uh, the parents, their righteousness is at stake in these things. I mean, that's why, uh, people will do whatever it takes, I think, to get into a school like this. And and most people I know at least who are involved in the, the context that Noonan describes were not the least bit surprised about this scandal. They were maybe a little bit shocked by the, the transparency and the way that the images were being photoshopped onto Olympic athletes. But, um, (laughs) I don't know. RJ, I know you preached about this a little bit, Sarah. I'm sure you have some things to share as a newly minted college chaplain. I know, right? Um, let's hear it. What do you th- what do you say?
1: I have a lot of thoughts about this. Um, I was at the grocery store last week in my Yale sweatshirt, which uh, you know, I went to the divinity school, not to the undergraduate part of Yale, which is way harder to get into. And um, the guy behind the counter asked, like, who was, like, at the checkout asked me if uh, my parents had paid for me to get into Yale. So I'm not wearing that sweatshirt anymore in public. Because um, it was a weird, you know, it was sort of a weird thing to be confronted with, like, that uh, in the grocery store checkout line. Mm. Um I also think in reading her piece, which I thought was so thoughtful compared to some of the other stuff that came out, it's it's really hard. Like sin always breaks your heart, and sometimes when there are people who, especially people who we see as like having more money than us or um, who are more privileged than us or more power than us, it's really so easy to hate them until you read something like this, and you're like, oh my god, they're so desperate and broken. And not that what they've done is like that, that makes it okay, but it really makes it harder to sort of disassociate yourself from their sin. Like, oh, I would never do that, which I was, I found this piece incredibly moving from that standpoint. Hmm. I mean, I went to Ole Miss. So this is like very, ribs. I know, right? This is very foreign to my experience, just because like Ole Miss, like anybody could get into. I don't know if it's still like that, but it was definitely like that when I was an undergrad. So we had like, at Ole Miss, you know, I think I've told you guys before I was um, a displaced student because I wasn't in the um, in a sorority. So I was like with like all of this whole sorority and it was full of girls, buxom, beautiful blonde girls um, who were all from Texas and they couldn't get into state schools. And so this is where they went. So that was the side of it I saw was I went to school where no one else, you know, like where everyone could get in. And so that's where you ended up.
2: I will say, you know, reading Noonan's piece, guilty is charged, you know, I got a junior in high school. I've got an eighth grader who, you know, just found out where, which high schools he got into, added to all of his eighth grade friends, whether they were applying to private high schools or selective public high schools or whatever, whatever it was. We actually had a party last Saturday night for all of our families uh, with kids in eighth grade. And this article came out like on the day that we found out what schools he got into. And my wife and older son happened to be on a college visit in North Carolina. So I don't know whether the Justice Department timed this for maximum outrage, um, and oh. effect, but but it was right in the middle of that thing in Houston, at least, and I'm sure all across the the country. Because what schools do, you know, high schools, they let you know where you got in, like Friday afternoon before spring break, so that if you are like angry, you basically can't get in touch with the administration for ten days. It's pretty genius. Mm. Um, so I'll just say guilty as charged. There's no question that part of my ego and sense of myself is wrapped up in my kid's success, and I wish it I wish it wasn't. But it is, and I fight it, and I pray about it. But it just is. That being said, um, you know, I watched that viral uh, Lori uh, Laughlin video, Laughlin video, where she's with her daughter from last year talking about her parenting techniques. Have you guys seen this video? It's mm-hmm. like a forty-five second video. So it's her and a daughter, and she's like, you know. We just don't push our kids very hard. You Wait, know, we who were never... is
1: this? Is this Aunt Becky?
2: That's Aunt Becky. Okay, got yeah. it. Okay, With one of her we're... daughters yeah, talking okay. about parenting. Okay, I'm tracking. I'm yeah, tracking. Yeah. <laughs> okay. She's like, we never pushed our kids that hard. You know, we didn't really believe in that. We wanted to give them a lot of freedom to explore and be creative and just go in their playroom and do their thing and, you know, just do your best. That was our, you know, you do your best. 100%. Everything's going to work out. Totally. And it's just so delicious. You know, <laughs> the irony. <laughs> <laughs> because I so I watched that video and I I you know and I was, you know, outraged and angry, and because I don't have the money to buy my kids into the schools they want to go to, you know, and here I have kids that are trying so hard and working so hard and you know, doing everything they can. And the idea that some other kid is gonna get in ahead of my kid is like, ah. But then I watched the video, and of course, everything she said about parenting I agreed with. Everything she said. And it it brought to mind, you know, a certain someone who said, uh, you know, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And then I was like, but of course she can say that because she's working behind the scenes to make sure that her kids, everything works out perfectly for her kids. And then I'm like, wait, that's exactly like Jesus. Mm. Jesus does and is doing the exact same thing. The reason he can say, do not worry come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, is because just like Felicity Huffman and Lori Loughlin, uh, we have uh, what Jesus talks about is a divine parent who is powerful and wealthy, who breaks the rules and pays the cost uh, at great personal cost to get his children something they don't deserve and haven't earned. RJ, so that that, you know,
1: I want you to both write this, and I also want to tell all our listeners to please direct all their hate mail about what RJ said directly to him. Do not include me in the
2: email. Thank you. But I'm sorry, it's just, but it's just true true. that all my outrage is totally Pharisaical, right? It's about what my how hard my kids have worked, what they deserve, what they've earned, and I'm like, and what does Jesus say? You know the tax collectors and prostitutes are getting into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you, you know? Or, or I, I also, I read that amazing parable of the unjust manager, the unjust steward, you know, who cancels the bills of the debtors of his master when he gets caught. Mm-hmm. And Rob, Robert Farrakapin says in Kingdom Grace Judgment about that being Jesus, mm. who unjustly cancels. He doesn't just, you know, lower our bills. He cancels them. He rips them up and throws them away. Mm. And so, and you talk about, you know, Noonan, Peggy Noonan, it's all about the work guess what? No, it's not. The kingdom of God's not all about the work. You know, it actually is not what you know. It actually is who you know. And the good news is that we know the good father. We know the king who has bought everything for us already with his blood that we don't deserve and could never earn.
1: Take us to church, RJ.
2: You know, so yeah. there you go. That's,
1: even that's good in the neighborhood, man. That's I mean, good. that's
0: beautiful. What can I say? That is beautiful. I think, um, Uh, yeah, there's not much to be added to that. I think, I think that college admissions really are the great measure of upper middle class and middle class righteousness. And for other people, it's other things, but that's what, there is something, you know, I just got to say it. There is something religious going on when you have, I mean, to take it further, RJ, you have admissions officers who are secular priests handing out, you know, blessings and justifying your
2: existence,
0: blessings and curses according to the sacrifice that you have made either through hard work or through finance and they're in in accordance with these divine standards of absolute excellence in which and and, you know the, the the standard to get into some of these schools is getting closer and closer to like the the you know Perfection, as it were. So it's like a second use of the law, not a not a not a third use or first use almost. I, yeah. I mean I worry about it with my own kids just because I had uh, you know, my dad went to Harvard and his dad went to Harvard and my uncle, my brother went to Harvard, and and like I grew up with that as part of the family mythology. And that was a that was a heavy thing. Even if they, they never put pressure on me for any of that stuff. But like you grow up with that thinking, oh my gosh, do I have to measure up to that? And at this point, if it's basically impossible to to guarantee a spot into Harvard, even if you've got a gazillion dollars, even if you've got perfect SAT scores, even if you've got the most amazing essays. I mean, I, I worry about how just in the here and now, how that law will translate going forward to my own children. Not that I went to an Ivy league school, but, uh, I know that it's going to be a lot harder for them to get into the undergrad school I went to than it was for me. And, uh, yeah, well, the, I, I think you the, send him to Ole Miss when that happens. I think so. You sent him to ten- Tennessee Tech. Exactly. <laughs> well, honestly, I couldn't get over how perfect of a, a sort of a lead-in this was to this essay that appeared on Ion this week. Um, I think that's how you pronounce it, Aeon. Ion. Uh, how the poor became blessed. Yes. Did you guys read this? Yes. Of course you did. Well, I sent it to you. A uh, Peter van der Horst, Pieter, almost uh seems a Dutch uh, academic. Yeah. Wrote this incredible Being Dutch
2: ain't much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if there's one thing I hate, it's the Dutch. People who are intolerant of other people's cultures and the Dutch. <laughs> oh gosh, we're dating ourselves. A smoke. <laughs> um Yeah, well, on on that note, uh, he writes about sort of, he, he says, ancient Greek moralists didn't admonish people to concern themselves about the fate of the poor. While generosity was praised as a virtue, the poor were never singled out as its object. It was always directed to humans in general, provided that they deserved it. Honor was the driving motive behind Greek beneficence, and therefore it wasn't directed towards the poor, but to fellow humans in general, especially those from whom one could reasonably expect a gift in return. These were the, quote, worthy ones because they acknowledged and respected the principle of reciprocity. It was rather the rich who were seen as the favorites of the divine world, their wealth being the visible proof of that favor. The poor could not pray for the help from the gods because they were poor. This was the implication of the common belief that the poor were morally inferior to the rich. And uh, then he goes on, he says, while care for the poor was a non-item in Greco-Roman antiquity, it is a central concern in the Jewish Bible. Caring for the poor is seen as a major duty and virtue, not only in the Torah of Moses, but also in the prophets and other biblical writings. Most significantly, God is seen as the protector of the poor and the rescuer of the needy. They are his favorites and the objects of his mercy, regarded as humble before God and therefore often as pious and righteous. Uh, He says the Torah, as we know, urges Israel to be generous towards the poor in their midst. The prophets warn repeatedly against oppressing the poor and the needy. A day acceptable to the Lord is the day on which the people share their bread with the hungry, bring the poor into their house and clothe the naked. Yet in spite of the fact that there's much concern for the poor in the Bible, there's still no record of organized charity among Jews of the rabbinic era. It was the Christians who sort of innovated that, at least. It's, it's, this guy, it was so funny. He was almost like apologizing for the fact, in classic fashion, apologizing for the fact that Christians actually were the ones who innovated this. I'm like, I'm, it's like, it's almost like, I'm so sorry <laughs> to break it to you people. It really, I really wish it weren't true. But it looks like the Christians might be. <laughs> we've
1: got some bad news. We've,
0: they, they might actually be responsible for charity. Um, and he goes on, he says, the Christians had a system of poor relief right from the start, as indicated in the New Testament. In the earliest phase, when the church was still a Jewish movement in the early 30s AD, the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem appointed seven men to oversee the daily distribution of food among uh, the widows in their community. It would seem that organized charity was a Christian innovation from the beginning. And then he closes with that amazing quote from 362 AD or Common Era from Julian the Apostate, the emperor, the last pagan emperor of the Roman Empire, who wrote in a letter to a priest in Asia Minor that lots of corn should be distributed to the inhabitants of Galatia and one fifth of it should be given to the poor and the rest to strangers and beggars. Notably, he then adds, for it is a shame... That when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans, other words, the Christians, support not only their own poor but ours as well, everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. In the discussion of privilege and how it relates to what people deserve and don't deserve, here we have this remarkable history of the poor that um seen as blessed. That is just uh, I don't know. It's a worthy reminder. It's a it's a it's a beautifully stated short three thousand word essay on maybe something that we can all agree is is actually a a pretty great thing about our our faith, despite its many, uh, you know, a lot of the baggage and all the historical problems. Here you have organized charity. I don't know. What do you guys think? I
1: thought this was amazing. I mean. I- It's so freeing, right? Like, and I love that it's, I mean, I, you know, I love old family narratives and uh, it's funny to have read this today because my husband is in Nazareth right now and I talked to him on the phone and he's in this um, convent that they discovered church ruins from the third or fourth century underneath. And I mean... It's so easy to forget that, like, we're so deeply connected to, like, third century Christians. Um, And to know that this is a thing that is innately a part of our DNA as Christians is just, it's just so freeing. Because I think it is really tempting in this world. And, um, you know, one of the pieces we read about the college admission scandal, you you said this out loud, that, that whole thing of, like... There's never enough, right? Mm -hmm. We never feel like we have enough, especially like the richer you are, then the more you're like, oh, I don't know, you know, like, um, and it's just so freeing that like, our hope is in the eternal and that we actually can just give it away and like not be held back by all these worldly anxieties. Like I find that exhilarating. Um, I mean, it's one of the things I think I love most about being Christian because there's not I think it's very easy and certainly the world builds us up in this sense of righteousness of giving money I mean good lord the number of emails I get in a day about you know all, all sorts of things from digging wells to sex work um and that stuff I mean and you know that's amazing worthy things people should be giving money towards but um there's a lot of shoulds around that, and there's something about giving money in a Christian way that's just like, oh, well, this is just what we do. Mm-hmm. That I love. I love that.
2: I don't know if I talked about this a year ago. I was looking up what the date was. It reminded me a lot of an episode of Fresh Air. Uh, Bart Ehrman was on Fresh oh, Air, yeah. so, which is always like, oh, how's this going to go? But no, he had just come out with this new book, The Triumph of Christianity, and Bart Ehrman and Tara Gross, both of whom are not Christian and kind of anti-Christian. You know, and Terry is kind of trying to egg Bart into talking about the triumph of Christianity. But what Bart Aaron basically ends up saying is that, you know, for, for the first three centuries, the reason that Christianity spread is because it had an ethic of love as opposed to the Roman Empire, which had an ethic of power, where if you were a man... You could abuse women because you're more powerful than them and you could enslave people that you'd conquered because you're more powerful than them and you could mistreat your children because you are more powerful than them. And Christianity comes along and says, no, mm-hmm. everyone has value. Everyone is loved. We're going to love people. And that 100% of the conversions happened through love with zero coercion or violence at all. You know, that that violence was just not even an issue at all Until Christianity became, you know, the religion of the empire when Constantine uh, converted in like the mid-fourth century. And even then, Constantine and one of his uh, sort of competing co-emperors signed the first ever freedom of religion treaty in the history of the world. You know, it gave people the freedom to worship in the way they wanted to worship. And then, you know, some things after that don't go so well. But it was kind of amazing for Bart Ehrman to say that, to say it was love, it was service, it was non-coercion, it was pacifism, and oh, by the way, it was also miracles. Everyone always says that that the church spread because of miracles, miracles, miracles. And never does he say, it's it's fascinating, never does he say, of course we know there's no miracles. He just lays it out there because that's what the early witnesses say. Um, And so it's amazing and beautiful and wonderful. And I'm going to, uh, I'm going to say something that's going to be a little bit controversial, but I'm going to say it. It's why, I really, it's why I'm a Christian and why I do actually think at the end of the day, and I'm, I'm going to qualify this, Christianity is better than any other religion. Ooh. Christians are not better than the adherents of any other religion. Probably We're just are. as sinful. <laughs> we're just as violent. We're just as hypocritical. Yeah. We're just as judgmental, maybe more so maybe more so. But Christianity, Jesus, Jesus is better than anybody else, you know? And, and to me, exhibit one is that, again, for the first four centuries, Christianity takes over the Roman Empire without shedding a drop of blood except its own. And that is just fundamentally different from any other religion, <laughs> you know? That, And maybe I said this before, you know, Jesus... Um, He never did anything of earthly significance. Never wrote a book, never had any money, never led an army, never held political office, never had any children, had a three-year ministry. (laughs) Never graduated college. Yeah, uh, died at a The most miserable death that humanity has ever conceived of utterly alone, deserted by everyone who ever knew him, and yet today he's the most famous person in the history of the world. Like, show me someone else like that. So, um, and one of the things that makes Christianity great is our unwillingness to coerce other people into what we believe even though of course we do that all the time but jesus didn't and paul didn't you know um they just laid it out there let him who has ears to hear let them hear mm-hmm. and 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 if you don't like what i'm saying just kill me <laughs> you right know, that's i can right. handle that right because i trust god enough to let you do that right so that our our i do like i guess i think christianity is better but our but that belief doesn't lead you then to impose your beliefs on other people right it means you trust god enough to just lay it out there and and suffer the consequences. Hmm. Even though, of course, I'm terrified to do that. Although I kind of just did.
0: <laughs> Sarah, just did. Sarah, I feel like he's living the solution in front of our eyes I right
2: do, now. I do, 100%. It's only because there's no humidity in the air. It's, That's it. It's That's just, all it is.
1: It's just like, I mean, I've, I say this all the time. I feel like I say this like every other sermon I preach. Like, Christine, he's a terrible sales pitch. And I feel like this is like such um, an accurate I mean, this tells us it's been a bad sales pitch from the beginning. Um, you know what I mean? That, like, we're no, we're going to take care of poor people. We're going to, like, do a little organization around that. We're just going to give things to them. And then we're not going to expect anything in return. And, and, like, and no one's ever done this before. You know what I mean? Like, and I want to think about doing that now. Um, middle class americans like that's one thing i think about third century christians doing that and i'm like it's incredible i mean these people didn't have much to begin with that's bananas yeah so um i loved this
0: yeah i mean i think i think it it reflects this sort of you know upside down status gets flipped completely upside down in the way that rj said it's not that status doesn't exist it's that god is the one who has given yeah. Status, you know. Sometimes I feel like we don't talk enough about the material of poor by t- by talking about the poor in spirit. But they're and they're not quite the same thing, though they sometimes are. But there is such a thing as the poor in spirit, and I think a lot of the a lot of these uh, upper middle class uh, Americans that I spend my life around and and probably would people would might say that that's what I am. And I mean, the poverty of spirit is unbelievably pronounced and and deep and the self-righteousness that can come along with that the despair that comes along with it it's um, it's it leads a person to say well um, if there's any hope it's got it, it, it can't be found in in this system in which I'm engaged maybe there's hope to be found in the complete opposite uh, the spiritual poverty with which in which we live and operate right now is a very um, pronounced and getting more and more pronounced I,
1: which which you know, this is, we'll, we'll hit on some of this with Connor's piece, but I do want to say I think what you're saying is really important that Christianity also speaks to those, I mean, very clearly Jesus does, to those who are poor in spirit, and that that is also ludicrous that we would have a religion that would speak comfort to those people. You know, I recently have heard that oft used phrase in my denomination that I think is from the newspaper business originally. Um, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable and i'm always like who the hell is comfortable
0: yeah that's the answer <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk let's let's read connor's piece yes, okay because connor yes. gwynn the reverend connor gwynn chaplain at uh stewart hall school in stanton and wonderful uh gentlemen who will be uh presenting in new york in about six weeks. And i just was with him yesterday and I know what he's going to be talking about and run, don't walk. But f- uh, as preparation, listen to a few of the things that we cannot say that he put down in a piece on Mockingbird. And he said, uh, he said, first, many churches have nothing to say to hurting people. It is almost a trite to say that people are hurting. We all know it intellectually. The truth is much more startling. A majority of people are in an incredible amount of pain, emotional, spiritual, physical. In fact, most people are on the verge of falling apart. People are always in a crisis, coming out of a crisis, or heading into a crisis. This is one of the only things in life that we can guarantee to be true. He goes on, he says, Jesus met people at the point of their hurt in the gospels. Jesus often named their pain or asked them to name it in the process of healing, as in what do you want me to do for you? Jesus reached out and touched people at their most fragile point and proclaimed God's presence with them uh, there. When people come to church, they are looking for something or someone to help them with their pain. They are looking for good news and relief. Often, however... As we know, they hear a message of do more for Jesus or care more about X or Y issue. And then he goes on. He says, a growing number of people in our churches are duns, as in like the nuns and the duns, those who are committed to the church, but have been burned out by the nonstop demands. Jesus did not offer a new system to achieve anything, especially burnout. Jesus came and offered rest. A choking person does not need a lesson in the Heimlich maneuver. They need help. Hmm. And he says, the shrinking mainline denominations often hold our noses up at megachurches that are growing. We chalk it up to smoke machines and production value. What doesn't get talked about enough is the fact that most preachers at booming megachurches are talking about real life and real pain. People may disagree with their theology, but they're clearly saying things that others want and need to hear. Unfortunately, even these massively popular preachers that speak to the real pain of people often stop short of saying the full truth of the gospel, that grace is real, unlimited, and completely unconditional. We cannot say this in our modern call-out culture. When forces seek to destroy people over misdeeds and mis- uh, missteps and their history, it is revolutionary to say that God's love extends right past the wrong thing, the worst thing a person has ever done. Should we name bad deeds and wrongs? Sure. Should we then use those slights and sins to banish people to the outer darkness? Probably not. We are flawed and sinful human beings. Ours is not the condemnation or salvation business. That work belongs to God through Christ, and through Christ that work is finished. I love this final sort of denouement. He says, the good news is not that God so loved the righteous or the good or the ones who stayed within the lines. The good news is that God so loved the world that all who believe in him would have everlasting life. We so want God to be like us, but the gospel is that God is not like us at all. Boom, as they say, goes the dynamite. (laughs) Connor paraphrases it here, but it's true. Everyone has a problem, lives with a problem or is a problem. And, um, and or <laughs> so if, if you're not, you're about to. Right. And so people would be like, Dave, you guys preach like it's like the, people are uh, th- there's something maudlin or something too dark going on. And, and there can be a way of being, I think, a little uh, we, we can get a little too bound up in uh, sadness or something. But um, the truth is that that everyone actually is in some kind of pain. It might not be it might not be on the, the relativity scale of, you know, hierarchy that we've currently Grafted ourselves onto it may not be as glamorous kind of pain, but it's real pain, and it's um, and if 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 we deny people that there's just nothing, why go to church? As he says, if you're really just giving people tips to improve their their bodies or their performance then they should just go to the gym on sunday mornings and um that's why in fact i think a lot of gyms are doing so well and so packed on sunday mornings hashtag seculosity,
1: hashtag
0: seculosity. um it really is true you start to preach to people and, I, and as though they're in pain even if they can't admit it or they can't they're not willing to go there um but then, all of a sudden, the one week that things have gone so badly that they cannot avoid it any longer, they fall apart and they they come back and and God's grace is right there and uh, Jesus is broken for them in the you know in the body and blood there and the, the altar and stuff. It's it can it's extremely moving and powerful.
1: I don't think we believe in true healing anymore, and I think that's a huge problem. I don't think we think about healing anymore, like healing the kind of healing that Jesus does in the gospels. And I think we don't think about it because we don't think we need to be healed from anything. Mm. Um, and I think sometimes the chief of sinners um, is the, is the people who've gone to seminary. I mean, I think a lot we're trained, you know, that these are all the techniques you learn to protect yourself and you won't get hurt and you won't do this. And then you definitely, I mean, I said in that room, you know, that I start with that Steve Brown, the way he starts every sermon. He says, you know, we pray for the one who preaches. And I, of course, say, for, you know, her sins are many. And somebody stopped me. He's like, wait, you say that like before every sermon? And I was like, yeah, man, like I need I need to be reminded that like I need to be healed in the midst of this. Um, But there's this profound anxiety when we preach this way that people think that people won't do things, that they won't fix things, that they won't change the world, that they won't care about stuff, that they'll just be, like, complicit. And my experience... and What I, are
2: they doing right now? I, exactly. You know, that was what Wesley said. He's like, if you preach this, people are going to go... Have drink and have sex and sin. He's like, what are they doing now? Right. Like they, we're, we're all complicit now. We're right. all doing nothing now. Right. We're all anxious now, right. you know, like, it, it, yeah, it's not working people.
1: But I think it is those places and RJ, maybe you can speak to this, but where people preach the most about our need for healing, the most about our need for redemption from sin that I see people do, incredibly generous. I mean, in the name of the piece that we read, Christian work for those who are poor, for those who are suffering, because out of our gratefulness comes great mercy. Mm-hmm. And if we can capture that, oh, my word. But, you know, no, we are we got to-do list to hand out to folks.
2: <laughs> uh, a couple of quotes, a couple of great quotes come, came to mind. One was uh, Richard Baxter, 17th century Anglican reformer, who said that uh, people said of him that he preached as a dying man to dying men. Mm. You know, and that, that, that's, we're scared to do it, mm-hmm. but that's what it is. Like we're all dying and everyone out there is dying. And, and again, it, what I see, you know, DT Niles a few weeks ago, one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread, but you got to believe you're a beggar and you got to believe you're preaching to beggars Yes. or the, the Reverend Leander Harding, uh, who's one of my professors at Trinity who said, uh, you know, when you look out on your congregation on Sunday morning, you need to recognize that most everyone there has walked over broken glass you know, to to get there that morning. And I think just seeing – it all starts with seeing your people differently, you know. Um,
1: Which, RJ, you are so good at talking. Like, RJ has, like, talked me – through sermons, I mean that it is Thanks, you're such a gift. No, it's Gosh. true. No, but no, it comes yeah. across think, in the, in, in, the in
0: the tone of the preaching. Yeah. If the if the if yes. the if the pastor standing above the people or with them in in the yes. midst of it and actually believes it for themselves, that uh, they don't have to say it. They don't have to go through all of the terrible things they've done. But you could tell. You can just tell. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rutger, for all of your many faults and foibles, I think all you, the banana you, you
1: ate and you look twenty-eight.
0: <laughs> you do. You do. That does come across. <laughs> And you can't fake it. You can't fake it. And I think it's. I do. I. I don't.
2: Man. I do. I. I love me. I love me some gospel, and I love me some people. But I also. Lo- I love me some Saint Martin's Episcopal Church too. The people there are good, and and. We do have an incredibly generous congregation, and I—I don't—I don't know what the exact fruit is. I can't—I can't draw a straight line. And of course, the minute you try, it's like you're trying to control something that you can't control. Right. right. Whereas you just need to trust that the word will, of God will not return to Him empty. You know, you throw it out there. But what—what what I feel like I do see, is yeah, people may be showing up a little bit more frequently. Them having maybe sort of like a, a freedom and a peace and a a. a I hate to use this word, but like genuineness, and they're not so scared to talk about reality anymore. They don't feel like they need to have a separate church personality and like everyday personality. It's like they can bring their actual self to church. Mm. Um, and there's something so good about that, mm. you know, that they be, they become more integrated to use your dad's word, Dave, you know, they, they, they become less split.
0: They can assimilate the um, negativity
2: they can assist, the boys can come out of the basement all the Pauls, all all the pzisms but it is true it is true and they start wearing jeans to church you know or not or they wear they wear whatever they want to wear and and that is so nice to see and you can and you can kind of feel it in a congregation as well where there's a sense of togetherness and love and freedom and um
0: yeah, I, I, so. the one thing I think um, that Connor's piece doesn't address, and it's not meant to address, but I think there are plenty of people at this point in the culture that it's not that they went to church and found that they weren't getting what they wanted or they weren't hearing enough uh, mercy. It's like it doesn't even occur to them that they would go to church and hear anything that has to do with their actual lives. That they, they it just uh, that they think God is an abstraction and they think uh, real the, the 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 anthropology you actually find. Outside the church is much higher, I think, uh, it, it, or it tends mm. to be just as high. It just is like, we can change. Yes, we can. All this stuff. You know, it's, it's, the, you deal with that in, in, you can do it in, in other ways. <laughs> and I think that some people think that, I mean, maybe they're done with church because they're so sick of the demands of church. Maybe they're also done with church because it, um, it wouldn't even occur to them to uh, think about life as tragic because they're spending all of their days trying, uh, involved in systems like uh, wealth accumulation, which are all designed to basically uh, uh, deny death <laughs> and, and any kind of uh, weakness. And so uh, I, I think the church is like, there, there's like an irrelevance that is becoming more and more baked into certain type of secularism that it, it is not irrelevant because everyone is dying but if you really are spending all of your time trying to forget that and you go to church and you're reminded that you're going to die you're like i don't want to go back there I don't want to hear about that uh, but and i I'm also reminded and the other thing I'd say is that you know over the years especially at these mainline churches that are at Episcopal Church where I go and people are very you know they look great on Sunday and sometimes I feel like they look too good I wish our church had more you know just a total slobs out there but the sometimes you be like well, how is this message connecting with these people who seem to they certainly just they look good and then as as i'm here at a place for 8 years it's just appearances every, it's just every single person it's like without exception the people that i thought were either uh, sort of a Tom Bombadil unfallen things came easily to, I find out that they actually have another child that no one knows about with another person. You know, I find out that their uh, sister died when they were young. I find out that there was sexual abuse and like without exception. And that's why they're actually in church. Even if I want to ascribe to them some sort of upper middle class desire to be accepted and liked. and, And this is just what we do as Christians. In fact, the people that are there and really coming and, and, and listening are the ones that you find out without exception are in pain and their pain is being addressed and not by you, the preacher, but by God through you anyway.
2: And I want to say something about that too, because let's, let's, let's face it right in main mainline churches and maybe the Episcopal church in particular is known for being kind of uppity. Is that fair to say like yes. frozen chosen looking beautiful, yes. like wealthy people And I think sometimes the problem is that I just, you know, priests can hate their people. Oh, They can look out. They can look out and be like, you – I mean – that was me. I remember yeah. my first job in ministry. I, I went. I was working at this wealthy church in sort of su- suburban Bay Area, California, and I went to go meet with my rector. And granted, I grew up in, you know, New Canaan, Connecticut, which is a wealthy little bedroom community. And I, I you know, graduated from Berkeley and like very privileged, um, but also very self-righteous. And walked into my 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 senior pastor as a Presbyterian church and I and I basically said how can you stand to be here, all these wealthy people driving all these fancy cars and they don't just don't care about anything. Gosh, it must be such a struggle for you. And because I know all about it, I just came from Berkeley. You know, and I'm super smart and very sensitive. Yeah,
1: RJ sounds um, fun.
2: Oh, so fun. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, RJ, you have two problems. One is that uh, you have no respect for people, mm. and the second is you still think money matters. Mm. And I wept in his office that day. Uh, but I never forgot it because he was 100% correct. Mm-hmm. That money doesn't really sort of matter at the end of the day. And that and it doesn't exempt anyone from the pain and suffering of, of life. Yeah. Um, and so I think getting past appearances. Uh, Dave, that's what you're talking about. Getting past what people you think people are like, what you think, you think they have together, what you think they should be able to do with all the privilege they have. And recognize that they're just a poor, slobby, you know, suffering, sin. Yeah. But it's ironic like because a lot of
0: times the people that are saying, I just want more authenticity in the church. And, and they actually, the one coming, judging the hell out of the people that look <laughs> fancy and like, who are actually in serious pain as well. And it's, it's, just yeah. a, but they're they're then they get judged in return. And it's this big sloppy mess of humanity. I want to say this.
1: So I am leaving this job at St. Martin's I've been there four years. I don't get to preach a lot on Sunday mornings because I'm with my children at my husband's church. But I have preached very regularly at the um, Wednesday services, which has been a huge gift to me because my dream my whole life before I met my husband was to have a church in Mississippi with 40 people on a Sunday. Um, And I get to have that on Wednesdays at St. Martin's without having to worry about keeping the lights on. Um, So I have gotten all these really sweet notes from people. Um, who come to that service very faithfully because they know me. And one of them is um, from a guy named Jim, who I know RJ knows. And I won't read all of it, but he said this. Um, You are a great preacher and sure to be even better. Your message of God's love, forgiveness, and blessing was really important to me. Even more was reminding me that salvation comes from God and I can do nothing on my own. What a relief even at 77, I'm still dealing with this takes a long time to overlay that which was introduced in the most formative years. That's it y'all. That's That's all I needed.
0: That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, let's, let's let Jim have the final word. Um, and, uh, to both of you I think uh, in a couple of weeks we'll actually be at Tyler Sarah and you and I can we can talk in person RJ mm-hmm. we'll, we'll miss you thanks for the invite sort of <laughs> <laughs> if you want to drive over and record with us that day that'd be awesome um let me think. I think I'll be, I'm gonna be on a college visit with one of my sons,
2: so. <laughs> fulfilling all righteousness. That not joking, actually. You know, I actually I'll be preaching at St. Thomas Fifth Avenue in New York City on uh, an evening song on Sunday, April seventh or something. So if there are any Ooh. New Go. York City people come, love to love to see you. Oh, it's be wow!
0: law,
1: so get ready.
2: That's right. I'm gonna hammer you.
1: <laughs> um,
0: well, to both of you, I just am so grateful for you, and I hope that you have a blessed. Week, I guess, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.
1: All right, bye, y'all. Thanks,
0: Dave. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com, and we'd always love to hear from you at info@mbird.com. At Audio production for the Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group and if you like what you've heard please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review until next time